Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias. This is a special bonus episode recorded live at the HP Lovecraft Festival Necronomicon 2017. This seminar was recorded in front of a live audience and its topic was Favourite Call of Cthulhu Scenarios. You can find the show notes for this episode as well as lots of other episodes about Call of Cthulhu, HP Lovecraft, stories and games at blasphemoustomes.com. As with all previous bonus episodes, Patreon backers have not been charged for this episode. Okay, good morning. Uh, welcome. This is Call of Cthulhu's favourite scenarios, in which uh, we will um, enthrall delight and entertain you, some allege, um, that uh, with our um, insights into which scenarios we kind of like, or that we've run... We always go back to the ones, our old faithful ones, the ones that maybe inspired us, and ones maybe it was the first scenario we ran, maybe it was the last one we ran, because it's the one that's most in our head at the moment. I don't know. But I've asked uh, these panellists to join, uh, join me this morning to tell, tell me and you guys about you know, what makes them tick in terms of scenarios. So uh, without further ado, I will ask each of the panellists to quickly say who they are and uh, what they do. And uh, then we'll get into it. So uh, I'll start down this end. Hello, uh, Christopher Smith Adair. I uh, these days primarily write as far as RPGs go. I've also copy edited for Pelgrane Press and Miskatonic River Press primarily. Um, as a writer, I've got uh, several things with Chaosium and some of the other companies. Uh, we mentioned the other day that uh, Mike mentioned the other day that there is a pulp campaign coming out from me in the future. Should be uh, next year, hopefully. Next year, hopefully. I'm in revisions right now. Shouldn't be too much longer. Called A Cold Fire Within. I'm Chad Bouchard. I podcast as Keeper Chad on the Miskatonic uh, University podcast. And that's probably, in this community, what I'm best known for. I'm noodling now with uh, writing and have some things coming out that are not quite out yet. Excellent. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm uh, Badger McInnes. Um, I primarily do uh, book design and layout uh, for companies such as Chaosium, um, Pagan Publishing, uh, Golden Goblin, Miskatonic River Press when they're around, Stygian Fox, and uh, more recently uh, some work for Pagan Publishing, or uh, sorry, Pelgrane. Um, I do a little bit of writing here and there, and uh, I also uh, do a little bit of game design with a small card game called Feed the Shoggoth. Hi there, I'm Paul Fricker. I'm um, one of the authors of Call of Cthulhu's Seventh Ed. Uh, I've worked on a few scenarios and campaigns for Chaosium, and I'm one of the hosts of, you know, I've almost forgot what it was called there, The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, and I'm not hungover in any manner or way. So I'm good. <laughs> Nothing different there then. So thanks for coming. Um, basically, the way this is going to work is um, I've asked each of the panelists in the, uh, in the weeks and months preceding this to think about what their favorite scenarios are. Then turn up today prepared with uh, you know, insights about those scenarios. So each of them have got you know, a handful of scenarios that, that they, they could possibly talk about. Um, so I'm going to ask each one to go basically pick one from their list and, uh, and then tell us a little bit about it. The other panellists are, are invited to chime in at any point with any questions or insights of their own. Maybe you've run it as well. Maybe you hate it. Maybe you think it's got loads of problems and how on earth do you think it's a good scenario? Or how do you overcome those challenges or, or vice versa? Um, you know, feel free to dive in. Uh, if not, then we will move on and go through until we run out of time. And uh, then we'll open it to you guys to ask any questions. Tell us what you think your favourite scenarios are, perhaps. That would be cool. Um, that sound like a plan? Everyone nods. Good. Okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with Christopher, if, uh, if that's okay. And ask you sure. to pick one of yours. So the uh, one that I chose probably as perhaps most favourite for a couple of reasons. I chose Sacraments of Evil, uh, which is by Fred Berendt. 
It's from a 90s compilation of Cthulhu by Gaslight scenarios. I ran all but one of those scenarios in that uh, book as a campaign, and it was great all around. Uh, Sacraments of Evil um, has a few things going for it that keep it in mind over the years since it's been about 20 since I ran it. Um, one is the nature of the, the mythos threat that's in it. Um, it's uh, one that I, I, I like. I've seen it used in, in other scenarios and have generally enjoyed that. I like the, the source material. Obviously, I'm being very vague here in case someone runs this. Uh, so, I'm going to dive in, actually, because we, we debated this before, and I, I, did, I told the guys to, to not spoil it. However, um, let's just clear it up now. Do you want us to spoiler these scenarios or not? Put your hands up if you wanted to spoiler them. Oh, well, hell. <laughs> All right. Okay, I, th I think that carries it, okay? So, sure. Yeah, That's the Loigor. Put your fingers in your ears if you don't want us to spoiler. Yeah. 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 Spoiler warning <laughs> yeah. So, yes, uh, it's the Loigor. Um, one of the things that I find interesting about uh, that species is uh, there's kind of a, an approximation. We can kind of understand them to a certain extent. It's the, the pessimism that they have. They have this uh, almost nihilistic uh, view of, of everything. They, um, they're almost oppressive themselves. So we can you know, kind of approach that. At the same time, this scenario especially, um, I feel, uh, highlighted the differences in a way. There's a lot in the scenario where um, it's how we as humans are interpreting this alien presence that's in his mind. As it grows more powerful during the course of the scenario, it starts to project dreams into both the investigators' minds and everyone in the city of York in uh, Gaslight period again. Um, sort of like happens in Call of Cthulhu. You know, so these dreams come in and uh, humans are trying to make sense of it. And to a certain extent, that's what causes the mundane threat in the scenario. Um, you have... Really, what's kind of interesting about it is you have two mundane threats that are connected, but only slightly. It's a serial killer scenario, in essence, which I'm not particularly interested in serial killers. So the fact that I, I love the way this was set up probably holds some more weight for me. Um, one of the two, and this is very much spoilers, but uh, you could still probably not figure it out entirely. Um, one of the two is someone who is well-regarded in the community. Um, which provides some, some trouble for the investigators. Um, so much so that once you start to figure out that, oh, it might be this person, the people who have even brought you into the community to figure out what is going on, why are all these murders happening near the York Minster, um, you can be pulled off the case because it's too hot. Um, that's the one, that particular threat is perhaps the main mundane threat uh, human threat, uh, working directly with the Loigor who is using him as his agent. Someone else is out there, though, a copycat, someone from the opposite end of the, the social spectrum. And uh, this person has become excited by the murders that are happening in town, decides to start doing his own. While the Loigor isn't um, using him directly, it... Uh, has started to feed him dreams, and he's doing very similar ones. So the players have to realize that there's more than one enemy out there. There's a lot in the scenario that it's very possible for the players to think we've finished this problem, both with these threats and then with the, the actual Loigor, and go off happily and then find out that there are still murders going on or things Chris, like that. Can I ask, the nature of the scenario really seems to play to the idea that it's, it almost seems would work really well that they, they kind of get into this scenario, they think they've solved it, some time passes, they realise they've not solved it, they've got to go back, and that right. kind of plays like that. Did, is that how you played it the time you ran it? Or? No, no. Um, but re reviewing it, I could see all the places where that could happen. Um, they figured out both murders. The, the cat's paw is the one, that, the, uh, not the cat's paw, but the, uh, the copycat is the one you're probably going to figure out first. There's, there's a fairly obvious clue after one of the murders um, that if you find it, you go, oh, it's, it's the riding crop that this man that we've seen hanging around you know, has. 
Um, the, uh, but yeah, no, they, uh, they figured out there was a lot of spinning wheels. Actually, uh, some of the, the murders from the copycat, they, they tend to take place out in isolated areas, out like kind of the Moors area. And my players uh, went and started to try to like dredge up the moors. Once they realized that there was some chthonic entity out there from the dreams they were getting from the other clues, they're like, well, we just need to spend a lot of time in these acres of swamps digging around till we find the thing that we're looking for, which is not there. Um, <laughs> Oops. So, but uh, no, they, they eventually got it together. It ended very differently than, than what I thought, which is actually one of my favorite things about the scenario, which is not... In the scenario itself, it's in what it meant for me. There are a couple of things in there that are really great, I'll call them set pieces, um, that when I read the scenario, I go, oh, I cannot wait for this to happen. One of them was relatively subtle, and it kind of fits one of the things that I like about it, is that there's a lot of thematic elements and a lot of foreshadowing in this, this scenario. You have people being butchered, for instance. One of the little boys who is killed you can go and speak to his father, who is himself a butcher. And there's this scene that's, you know, like heartbreaking when I read it on the page. You go in there, and the, the man is so disconsolate. His, his wife died in childbirth. Boy was the only one in his life. You come in, and he is disconsolate. He, he doesn't even fully comprehend that his son is gone. You know, he, you, you come in, and he's asking, where's my boy? You know, I, I can't find my boy. And there's this point where he just begins weeping and he wipes his bloody hand across his apron. I'm like, oh, I cannot wait for this, this, this heart-wrenching moment. I don't think my players even spoke to him. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yep. and I was sitting there and I'm going, but I have to have this, this moment. Oh, it'll be so good. And then I let it go, which was something of a breakthrough for me back then. Um, I was very much like, oh, this is the, the moment. I've got to build up to that. I've got to drag them however I can. I'm like, it's not where the players went. The end of it, when you, when you confront, if you confront the, uh, the main enemy at the church, he'll try to escape, and he does this thing where he runs up the stairs. You can chase him up the stairs after he's talked to the, uh, this, is, this is a great image as well, it's that the, the Loigor is, has infested essentially this statue of Christ and speaks to his enemy there, and, it's the, and there's cockroaches covering it, and it's glowing, and it's, it's amazing. But um, it runs up the stairs, you uh, chase him, and uh, he. If you don't catch him while he's got his cloak of fire spell going, you know, which is basically like stars falling around, he'll fall out, jump out, leap out the window, and discover that he cannot fly, impale himself on spikes. They uh, confronted him in uh, his room, which was actually very tense and very exciting because they they get into his room because they've suspected him at this point. They've decided we're just going to break in and do something to him. I don't know what. So they get in there, and he. Uh, he wakes up, he casts the cloak of fire, and he's floating above the ground, and the player's like, oh my god, he's, he's possessed, he's possessed! They don't know what to do, and they're, they're, they're screaming, and they're running around like chickens with their heads cut off, and then they defeated him. Brilliant. D has anyone on the panel played in it, or run it yourselves, or just out of interest? Anyone in the audience played this one, or run it? Oh, nice. Good pick. Okay, so it's <laughs> in, in Sacraments of Evil, is it? Yeah? It's the, in the, the book of the same name. About yeah. 95? 95, that rings a bell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's certainly, I know that it's on my shortlist. I have a shortlist of, shortlist is like yeah. long, of previously published Chaosium scenarios that, you know, deserve a, you know, republication at some point. And uh, it's certainly on, the, on on my list for that. So, I uh, recommend it. I, I've run everything but one, and I would have run the other one. That's great. It's, Thanks. it's one of my favorites. Thank right. you. Okay, I have a question about it. Um, Sure. It's in, uh, so Sacraments of Evil, the book, that's a collection of gaslight scenarios. Is that right? Would yeah. you say that the scenario, is that really specific to the era or could you transfer it to I think you era? could transfer it. There's, um, there's definitely other things about class, but England with class in the 1920s probably isn't that terribly different, um, you know, as far as the structure of everything goes. Um, you know, it takes place around the York Minster and everything else. I don't think it has to be, but it, it fits well with the era. I'm getting a real kind of, in the back of my head when you were talking about the um, the Statue of Christ and um, the kind of the mythos kind of infesting and speaking through 
do that. I just had this in my head. I had True Detective in my head for some reason, mm. and I had this kind of modern take that obviously would require significant changes and, sure. and modification. But in terms of concepts and um, structure. Um, I can almost see that also being a possible way to, to work it and bring it, yeah. in, you know, bang up to date in a very modern contemporary setting as well. But that would, I think, require a lot more work. Yeah, I mean, the the uh, the lower class killer um, might need to change his profession a little bit. He's yeah. a truck driver or something instead of a guy who has a donkey cart, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. Thanks, right. Okay, let's, let's move on. Um, I'm going to uh, go to Badger now. Badger, I, I think I know which one you're going to talk about. <laughs> and in fact, I have a copy of it here. Um, I'm going to talk about, first I'm going to move this mic there so I'm not leaning over so much. Um, I'm going to talk about Grace Under Pressure. Is anybody familiar with this scenario? Okay, awesome. Um, so Grace Under Pressure was published by uh, Pagan Publishing in 96, or I'm sorry, 93. Um, and it was the first of their uh, resurrected out of the vault line. I think they did three, and this was a standalone. So it originally appeared in the Unspeakable Oath. It was written by uh, Jeff Berber and John Tynes. Um, the easiest way to sum up how um, or what how Grace Under Pressure works is take uh, the Abyss and Aliens in Call of Cthulhu put that all into a bag and shake it up, and you've got grace under pressure. Um, the uh, concept of the scenario is that it, uh, there's a joint uh, Australian and French um, uh, undersea research vessel operation um, that the PCs are taking a part of. And uh, it takes place um, like three years in the future. So at the time it was written, it was it took place in 1996, but of course you can always move that forward. Um, and so you're aboard this deep sea uh, research vessel and uh, it's just now going through its first phases of, of real world testing. So you as the player characters um, have to you know, run the tests of the ship and make sure that everything is working the way uh, it's supposed to. And of course, something uh, bad happens that you discover, um, or as you you know go through your tests. Um, this is a, a very self-contained one-shot scenario, and in this version, uh, they have everything from your player characters to uh, the maps it's, uh, of the station. Um, they even included some cardboard cutouts, and the uh, the other great thing they included is the official Pagan Publishing Fleetometer, which you can see <laughs> down here. Because at one point later on in the scenario, there's a lot of running around and being pursued by um, certain creatures that you would commonly find in you know underwater. Um, it's it's a great scenario on many levels. I mean, it it hits the um, the tropes of fear of the unknown because you're out in the middle of the ocean and who knows what could be out there. It also hits um, that sense of isolation because you're on your own. I mean, you, you and your fellow player characters are it. There's no outside help. Um, I think you maybe can radio to another ship that's nearby, but um, other than that. You're on your own. Um, and one of the other great things about the scenario is that you really do have to split the party. At one point, there is um, uh, there's a mini sub that holds two people, and they have to go out and start effecting repairs um, on on uh, what the the Wallaby is the name of the research vessel. And um, so they recommend that you have two uh, GMs to run this. I was insane enough to do it myself. Um, I've run this twice, and the first time was still the best. Uh, I ran it at a convention, and we had you know, the, the, the main room, and then we had the bathroom, and I had uh, walkie-talkies for the two separate groups. So um, you have the two groups talking to each other via walkie-talkie. You turn the lights off in the other room and just have like little glow sticks so that they can see by. Um, and that really further pushes the, uh, the sense of isolation. And as the mini sub goes out, uh, and they encounter stuff, uh, the main uh, ship starts uh, having problems of their own. Um, and 
it was during this scenario that I had one of the greatest role-playing moments of my life when there's a lot of chatter going on between uh, the, the two groups on the walkie-talkies and things are starting to really get tense. Um, and I go into the bathroom where the sub is um, and uh, I, I tell the pilot, so, you know, you're out there, you, you're starting to get pings on your sonar and uh, you start to see some uh, figures um, swimming through, uh, you know, the light that's being cast from your, um, your mini sub. And then all of a sudden you see this and I put it right in front of his face and he literally jumped out of his chair and screamed. And they heard, the other group heard this over the walkie-talkies. And I could hear people in the other room go, oh my God, what the fuck is going on? Um, I, I know this is terribly out of print, um, <clears throat> but I hope that maybe they have a PDF of it available somewhere. Um, if you can get your hands on it, I highly recommend it. I'm pretty sure if, if you find if you can't find it on the Pagan site, I'm pretty sure if you all mass email Adam Scott Glancy and <laughs> Shane Ivy, they'll take note. So uh, yeah, I mean, isn't it, isn't Grace Under Pressure a masterclass of convention style design for a for a scenario for Call of Cthulhu? You're in an isolated location where nobody can escape from. Um, it's a limited environment. Um, it's self-contained, and you've got that beauty of you've got the you know the um, the uh, the away mission, and you've got the you know you can go into a separate room, and here's here's a walkie-talkie or a mobile phone or whatever it is, and you've got this but you've got this connection between the two groups that can be manipulated by keepers, evil keepers in the outside world. Uh, it's um, you know wonderful. That's that's my experience of it. Have you you played it or run it, Paul? Yeah, so I've run it at Concrete Cow in England, uh, a convention in Milton Keynes, and myself and my friend Robin ran it um, down in a like a cellar room, which was already pretty cool, and there was like a, a sort of a storeroom next to it. So you know, it's it is very much like a showcase scenario, really. It's like a you know a bit of a multimedia experience. So we had red lights, like you say, and uh, glow sticks and whatever, and the walkie-talkies, and I think also um, through searching around online, we found some audio, you know, MP3s of uh, like radar sounds and underwater sounds and yeah, so on. And so you too. can really, yeah, you yeah. can really like get the whole thing up. It's not that difficult. It's not particularly difficult scenario to run, but it's just a really cool experience for everyone. Yeah. It's, it's very easy to make immersive with yeah. just yes. getting yeah. some, yeah. you know, turning off the lights, so getting glow sticks, yeah, getting the sonar pings and yeah. some <laughs> spooky moon. And we've all wouldn't, seen. Be awesome, wouldn't be awesome if you... This is a terrible hour, I think, in the convention. You got like your dresser room a little bit, you know, you get some yeah. black bin liners for kind of like, you know, seaweed walls and that. And one, I think I know where you're going. And, and in one, you hide someone dressed yeah. in a deep one suit, and covered in the <laughs> bin. And you, but they sit there all session hidden, yeah, until that point, and then you just get the player right and they can just come out. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? You'd do a great job of that, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that. Again. I, I love Grace Under Pressure. It's, it was, as you know, it was on my list as well to, to talk about. Um, yeah. And uh, there, it does a couple of things. Sorry. No, I was just going to add to, to Mike's thing. When we have run, I think you've got to be careful with that kind of thing. Because do you remember when we were running that scenario on Centipede Island? Yes. And we took one of the women out and sat her on the stairs. And we were sort of describing what happened. And it was in a fairly dark stairwell. <laughs> and then she said, was it? We we said, I'll stay here, and she was gonna, we we're going to turn out the lights or something. And she said, if you do that, I will punch you. <laughs> <laughs> I won't be able to stop myself. And we're like, okay, let's not do this. Thank you. Well worn. Yeah. Yeah, I had a great experience. Uh, I, I, I haven't uh, run it. I have played in it with somebody in the audience, in fact. And it's one of my top favorite Call of Cthulhu experiences of all time because of the, that isolation, that, all, that stuff all worked. But I, I was thinking about this scenario. It does a couple of really interesting things. I mean, the isolation is, is amazing because you've got this great weight of the ocean on top of you and you can feel that, it's palpable. Um, but the other thing that it does really well is that I sort of discourage or try not to do because of bad experiences um, It is having one 
individual player or group of players deliver information to another group of players. But this bifurcated you know, away team and, and home team thing works so well and uh, because, because the horror is delivered by, the, the greater horror is delivered by one of the team, the, the away team, right? They go and they see, can I, I can spoil, yeah. right? Yeah. They see Rilia, basically. And they're, so they have the full weight of, you know, looking at this city, this underwater city and realizing there's a frickin' civilization. Also, there's angles that don't work and, you know, they've seen, they've seen the bigness of, of cosmic horror. And they're trying to describe this over the walkie-talkie. Right, right. Well, I'm thinking when they come back, but you're right. Yeah, they're doing their, they're, they're describing over the walkie-talkie. Yeah, but they also could show up, right? I don't know if you ended up having them meet in the, in the pod. Because the away team can come back to, to try to escape, right? They can, but when I ran it... Uh, Did they die? They, they, no, they didn't, they didn't die, but they were just trying to get away. Yeah. At the, at the same time that they started to see, I think, it was, was it Cthulhu or was it a star spawn of Rise? In it's a star spawn? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the Wallaby was being attacked by Deep. Yeah, exactly. So, oh, that, so that's the other thing that I think it does amazingly, is that... Um, you have two scales of the mythos. So you have this very sort of human level fish people, which are humanoid, and then you have the full cosmic horror meeting at the same time under stressful conditions. And, and it just makes this incredible dramatic tension. I, we had ours meet in the pod, uh, in the, I don't know what it's called. Is the wallaby? Is the, yeah, the wallaby the station? Is the... Yeah, that's the, yeah, yeah, that's not the away thing. Yeah, and so so we had everybody meeting at the Wallaby, and then figure and there's a formula, right? There's a puzzle to be worked out in how the people can get up to the surface because there's only so many escape pods. There's there's some individual ways that you can get like a float and a uh, immersion suit or whatever it's called, and you know, a thing that you don't need ox. Uh, the decompression, decompression suit? Yeah, like a di the equivalent of a diving bell in a suit, whenever that is, where it's a dry suit. Anyway, there's this formula of equipment and how many people are left, right? <laughs> but it, that arrived, that realization arrives in utter stress, in, in a time of utter, utter stress. So everybody was scattered, in our game anyway, trying to figure out how, uh, what we should do. Should we fight the fish things? You know, you have to fight, fight them off at least. And, and how do we escape? And then we had a, uh, different agendas because of cosmic horror versus the human scale. And so that formula is very hard. It, it's not that hard to figure out, but it's very hard to figure out if you're playing your characters properly under that stress. So that, I, it's just it, a, it, beautiful. It, it's one of them situations. It's why I say it's a classic setup because you've got the limited environment, but you've got this bang, bang, yeah. bang, bang. And yeah. you haven't got time to... Right. As you're registering the last thing, there's something, before you can solve it, there's something else coming through the window. And Yeah. They actually call them whammies in the book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think it's something else that's very strong about this scenario that we can see in other scenarios in, in very different ways, and which is why, for me, it makes it a relatively easy one to run. And I've seen this in other scenarios. So, you know, some of these scenarios for Call of Cthulhu, you give them to the players and they're like, oh, I don't really know anything about the 1920s or the 1890s. And, you know, what would an anthropologist do in, you know, Bolivia or something? But we've all seen, right, submarine films, right. You know, whether they're war films or, you know, uh, Das Boot or, or whatever. And if you're in a film with a submarine, you know what's going to happen, right? It's going to get, like blown up, there's going to be water coming in, the lights are going to go red, it's going to... And it's going to be panic stations. So as soon as you give the players that, they're like, oh, okay, I know what this setting is. And yeah. it's so easy to, like, put yourself in it. I've never actually been in a submarine, but, you know, I kind of... I can... I've never been a cowboy, but give me a cowboy character and I'm away. Give me a person in a submarine, I'm away. It's, like, easy buy-in. Yeah, And what, what you just said touches on something else that I think makes this scenario so great is that on top of the mythos threat, you've got the environment itself that is an ever-present mm. uh, you know, threat to you because you're, you're underwater and it, you, you, you're... It, you know, I think that's it. And you can, you can imagine that because yeah. we've seen it portrayed. So I can 
And, and it's easy for the players to buy into that. It's yeah. like, I, okay, I understand that if I'm 1,500 feet underwater, that's it's oppressive. It's enough. oppressive, yeah, and I'm probably going to get the dangerous. bends and you know, freeze to death if I don't sure. drown. So you don't have to really explain that to, to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. That rec- oh, I think we all would all recommend Grace Under Pressure with, uh, with that reservation, I think. Um, okay, let's move on. Um, okay, Chad. Yeah. Um, I think I know which one you're going to pick out of the little list I have in front of me, but uh, really? see, 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 what, see what happens. Yeah, Go well, it. I mean, I think I think it bears mentioning um, because it shows up on so many lists of favorite scenarios for other people. Uh, the paper chase is this little little thing that was in uh, the Cthulhu Companion that came out in 1983. It ended up as one of the beginner scenarios in the rule book. I know in fourth, and I couldn't confirm whether it was all the way back to third. It was in third. It was in third? Okay, so yeah, so in third and fourth edition, uh, Call of Cthulhu Rules. And it is just a little haiku of of a scenario. It's so simple and so elegant. Uh, it takes place in Arnoldsburg, Michigan. Is that the one you thought I would pick? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are most people familiar with this or have Anyone? seen it before? Though that's yeah. that's you should look it up. It is less than two thousand words, and uh, it's like in nineteen hundred something. And there's not much there <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, as far as investigation, but it does a couple of amazing things really well. Um, so. This is a, an investigator's call. It's a one-on-one scenario, too, which is, uh, it surprises me a little bit that that becomes one of my favorites because I think that's really challenging to do, but, but it does it really well. And so this investigator is called in by someone to uh, look into a burglary. Uh, they, his vanished uncle has uh, a library, and someone has stolen books out of that library. And I am going to uh, just spoil the heck out of this, but um, you you need to figure out uh, what happened with the books and also whether or not his uncle is alive secondarily. But it's you know it becomes clear that maybe you don't want to rock the boat there. Um, and basically, you know, you figure out that it's it's the uncle um, who ha- who has broken it. Ultimately, you find out that it's the uncle who's broken in. You follow a not very uh, complicated clue trail and you have uh, someone to interview and depending on how that goes, uh, you may or may not find out some sort of extra information. But then it takes you underground into a crypt where you find out that the uncle has become a ghoul. And so then you're confronted with this, the idea that, and he, all he ever wanted was, it's is sort of like the Twilight Zone episode, uh, again, I'm forgetting a Twilight Zone episode name <laughs> where uh, there's an apocalypse and, and the guy just mm-hmm. only, only wanted to read, he ends up in a bank vault. Oh, shoot. Anyway, so. The guy who broke his glasses. Yeah, yeah, same, same idea, he's just sort of, uh, he wants only to read, um, He's so obsessed with this that he ends up becoming a ghoul, so he can he just can continue to do that, and in choice. peace he just wants peace, which is so I think for our crowd for Call of Cthulhu players I think that resonates a lot, <laughs> you know the idea of just being a, a bookish person wanting peace leave me alone mom I'm you know I'm into my EC comics or whatever it is, um, so then you're you've got a kind of moral dilemma. Uh, depending on where your character is in their arc, as far as contact with the mythos, it is meant as a as a beginner scenario. Um, but if they've contact, if they've been in touch with ghouls before, they could really see that as a, a threat. I mean, it's, it, it, it is a re- as you say, it's a short, very simple introductory scenario. Yeah. But it, you know, uh, an experienced keeper could easily layer in. You know, you said there's one interview. You could actually construct a whole backstory for this sure. guy you're investigating. And it, become very in-depth investigation and yeah. expand and you know bring in other characters very easily if mm. you wanted to go down that route but you know it allows you to do that doesn't it I guess so. yeah it invites um, expansion from the keeper which I think is attractive to to a lot of keepers too and we all like to make stuff up um, but I just love the moral dilemma there I love 
very much that it's this is on a list, a short list of scenarios that where it's very unlikely that you, that it'll end in combat. Um, so it's possible if you've encountered ghouls before that you might see this, you know, immediately. No, they all have to die. Um, but you're faced with a monster who is sympathetic, and I just this was Monfort. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I'm ripping on what you're saying. It it does have the possibility of there is a monster that isn't a monster. Yeah. And by killing the monster, you become the monster. Yeah. yeah and yeah, that's yeah, yeah. really beautiful kind Absolutely. of moral kind of conduit at the end. Yeah. Yeah. And and this was my first scenario, and it was that I played, um, mm. and my keepers in the audience. Um, and it was such a powerful and new and strange experience in role playing to have that happen. I got to the monster, and I, was, I, I really I wasn't even sure what to do. I hadn't played Call of Cthulhu before. I hadn't really played very nuanced. You know, I played superhero games up to that point a lot, and fantasy games. So the idea of finding your enemy after a tough uh, little investigation, or not so tough, uh, and then and then giving up, letting it go was very haunting for me and, and set the tone for the game in a way that I think uh, other beginner scenarios might not necessarily have done. And, and I love that and I seek that out now. So that's one thing. And then the simplicity of it I really, really love. I, I'm not a big fan of complicated clue trails as far as running uh, scenarios. So this, the simplicity of it just really um, resonates with me. But it has so much. It has so so much character, dilemma, and uh, meat to it. So, it's a very mature uh, scenario concept. Yeah. Uh, in, in pretty, I guess, advanced, uh, for lack of a better term, especially for when it came out, because you said, what, 83? 83. Yeah, yeah, up until that time, it was you know, solve yeah. the mystery, get, kill the bad guy. Yeah. I will say, in reviewing the text itself, the tiny little bit of text, I found some funny things about the mechanics. Like it, it certainly looks like it was written at a time when people were still trying to figure out how how to use the mechanics in a scenario. There's, there's just strange things that have been sort of left by the wayside, like adding up different stats. It, 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 there's places where you might have to pause and kind of go, oh, the. You know, there's, there's some strange, strange ways to express uh, chance in there, but um, but yeah, that's that's easily you know, workaroundable. Um, I would be very remiss not to say the author's name is John Sullivan. I think I'm, I forgot to say that. Um, and it ta the other thing is, it takes place in Arnoldsburg, Michigan, which is you know I've, I've, I don't even I'm trying to think of another Michigan scenario, but you know it's a strange specific place for it to take place but but i remember when i played it, it was in arkham i think um because it was a part of a larger picture in a campaign uh ultimately. I mean, you could set it anywhere you can set it anywhere there's a tomb yeah. you know all yeah. you need is a house and a tomb uh and and it fit into anything and you could drop this into any campaign it doesn't have to be your first scenario or a beginner scenario it'd be a great one for those times when no one but the, the one player shows up or, or things fall apart. Hey, do you want to do a little side adventure? Right? Or, or even even the point, you know, between, between campaign chapters and, and someone says, oh, I'm going to do that, spend time with the backstory. I'm going to go to my favorite location or visit my favorite uncle to get a bit of sanity back. And right. just, you know, the, oh, the pillars thing. thing. He's yeah. died and, and, and what's happened. And, yeah. And this, like, mini make it little, personal you would could, be great. You could make it really personal. Yeah. And, uh, yeah I <clears throat> I really feel like it's uh, almost a singular scenario. So short, mm -hmm. and it really just—it's a dilemma. That's that's what's the heart of it. Um, you know, there there are some other scenarios that do similar things, mm -hmm. but um, it was the first thing that I ever ran. Oh, is that right? Um, yes, I grabbed a friend and said, "Let's try out this new game that I picked up, new to us," um, and it was you know a good experience. The um, and John Sullivan, I mean, it's not a name that, you know, if you'd asked me who wrote it, I couldn't say what the person's name is. I don't know if he ever really wrote anything else, especially for Call of Cthulhu, which is too bad because for him to come along, especially early on, and uh, come up with this different way of looking looking at it. I actually ran into him at um, 
H.P. Lovecraft uh, Film Festival in Portland. You did? And I didn't, John I didn't, Sullivan? Yeah, I didn't really talk to him, wow. but um, I was uh, over with Scott Glancy, and Scott was like, oh my God, you know, when, when he happened to mention, he was like, oh yeah, I wrote Paper Chase. And, and, and Scott Glancy was like, what, you did what? Good Lord. He was like, you know, um, practically tackled the man to the floor and uh, praised him forever. Um, and, you know, rightly so. So I kind of let that go, and I was just like, oh, that's John cool. Sullivan. He just, he had just come to the festival and was like, oh, yeah, you know, I once wrote a, <laughs> this little, little scenario. Yeah, I can't believe um, this. And I wish he'd done more. It's like, you know what? It was the first scenario I ran. Yeah. <laughs> Is it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. because it's so easy to do, because you only have to convince one friend for one thing. If you have Well, the friend convinced friends. me to buy it, so I buy yeah. it, bought like yeah. a second-hand box set, and it got the companion in it, and I kind of leaped through it, and I thought, that one's short. Yeah, I go. it's very attractive that way. It's just a, such a gentle scenario, I think. Mm, yeah. And it's like, you know, in the 80s, well, I guess I played D&D and various kind of things that were kind of like that. And then you get this, and you're like, what the hell? Yeah. We, we, well, for a start, this is a game where we can play regular people. And then, like, yeah, like you're saying, it's not necessarily going to fight the monster. And it's just got this lovely gentle tone to it that's, uh, yeah, I mean... It obviously did the trick because <laughs> everyone the yeah. thing we played. Yeah, we, we kept going. So and it's not I'm, a bad I'm way to start. I'm going to invite Brian Cortman to say something because I, I, yeah, I'm hopping down my chair. You are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I don't know. Wanna, I don't want to interrupt the flow, but I didn't know. Can we jump in with comments? Please do. Sure. Please do. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to riff a little bit on on some of the general comments, especially yours, Chad, about becoming the monster or maybe noticing that the monster's not the monster. In the Keeper notes, where it says that the uncle himself had an encounter with the ghouls, and it wasn't like he was murdered by the ghouls or kidnapped by the ghouls. He's sort of invited to become uh, a ghoul himself to that new way of life. And so even there's even that layer of, it, like you guys, it sort of says to me, not every it, it, it can still be horrifying, but not every mythos monster that, that turns up even to grab the NPCs has to end in sacrifice or slaughter. Maybe that's where cultists come from. Maybe that's where, uh, you know, um, these sort of, these, why are all these other NPCs in line with all these sort of strange things? Well, here's an early example of some guy just going out to a quiet cemetery to read, and he encounters something unearthly, and, uh, and he kind of gets brought over to that side. That, that new, and it's not uh, necessarily, we would think it's horrific, but he's like, no, this is great. <laughs> So, uh, so kind of, it was an early for me. It was an early intimation of why people kind of align themselves in some way or other with powers of the mythos. Yeah. yeah. I think, sorry. Well, um, it, it it seems like a very atypical Call of Cthulhu scenario. I mean, atypical for role playing in general, but even Call of Cthulhu because you know it's the monster and why aren't we, you know, killing it or whatever? But I mean, you look at it for one thing. It, it is fairly Lovecraftian, right? There's a lot of wonder in yes. uh, yeah. in Lovecraft. End of Shadow of Rinsmith is he's going to live in wonder and glory forever. He's become that which he found disturbing before, but now it's yeah. it's great. Um, I mean, looking at ghouls, they we often use them as antagonists, but I mean, what are they really? For the most part, they hide. They uh, they eat corpses, which is you know disturbing, but they don't they don't want fresh kills per se they can because you know i mean you've got in pickman's paintings you know that breaking into subways and things like that so you can play them that way absolutely but they don't have to be that way so it you know it's an interesting take on it that's something i've been picking up this weekend this you know when we had a discussion about what makes your game lovecraftian uh, other panels where they've, they've mentioned like lovecraft quotes and so on and i think so often we're striving for horror and you know Maybe that's part of it, but an almost larger part of it that I get from reading Lovecraft, I think I'm realizing now, is it's a sense of wonder. Yeah, it's a sense of wonder at these, you know, whether it be in the rats in the walls, it's like this underground vista. It's like, what the hell is all that about? It's like, wow. And, and the ghouls, you know, they, they're not just like monsters that kill people or just eat dead corpses. They've got ways through, through the dreamlands. We see Pikmin and then we see him again later in another story. And... Yeah, there's like this whole thing going on that, that is kind of hinted at and it's wonderful and we get little 
um, tastes of it, but we can't really see the whole thing. And it's a sense of wonder rather than horror sometimes. Well, you, you get this kind of mix of it with, with, mm. with the kind of deep ones, particularly, because you get yeah. the kind of revulsion. But you, but you also get Lovecraft actually writing that, you know, to go live in the wonders of the deep, you know, immortality. It's, it's kind of like, wouldn't that be great? I kind of think it would. <laughs> you know, and, and, and he describes it in a way that sounds really appealing. Or maybe you're kind of half in there. I don't know. I mean, really, I mean, if you look at, I mean, one interpretation, uh, interpretation of Shadow Over Innsmouth, which now we're talking about the fiction rather than the scenarios, but that informs what we do, right, is that, um, I mean, what do the deep ones really do that's that horrible necessarily? <laughs> I mean, I've started to look at, you know, like well, Zadok Allen disappears at the end, but do they really just like, why don't you sit over here and stop, you know, saying stuff? I think there's something they do, Chris, that's yeah, fairly sexual assault. Yeah. <laughs> Is it, though? They've, Is they've it been invited okay? into that community, and you don't have to take the third order oh, oath. Yes, Zadok yes, Allen yes. lived in that community for, till he was an old man, didn't take that oath. I mean, it obviously, he was an alcoholic, and it probably just, he, he probably lost his mind over it. But other than that, I mean, the deep ones didn't necessarily want him to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he isn't even necessarily killed at the end of that. We don't know. We never right. see him again. No. Is he just, well, why don't you sit over here? This is our relative over here. The protagonist is the relative. They know who he is. They aren't out to kill him. They're welcoming him home. Yeah, it's a cla- it, it, in that sense, it's a classic misunderstanding of communication mm. at the very start. It's, yeah. yeah but, but anyway. The other, oh. Anyway. So we should move on. Oh. I'm going to call time. I'm going to call time in moderator type. Um, we can always come back. Um, but uh, we are we are rapidly moving on. So I, I do want to get Paul's um, Paul's one in as well. Uh, so Paul, do you want to have a talk about which um, scenario you've chosen? <clears throat> so I've chosen uh, a scenario from The Unspeakable Oath, uh, issue fourteen fifteen from nineteen ninety seven by Adam Gauntlet, called An Unhealthy Occupation. Uh, this scenario is set in an old house, and the owner has died. It's a classic kind of. Isolate, well, not even isolated, really, but all in one house, kind of haunted house scenario, essentially, but with a with a very different kind of twist. Um, the investigators go along, and they're tasked with evaluating um, valuing a collection of books, the the Stuyvesant collection. It's called this. This uh, person had a collection of rare books, which immediately, you know, you call Cthulhu play, thinking, oh, that's where it's at. Uh, and you go in the house, and there's a few kind of odd things, but nothing really blatant. And as keeper, you can kind of sit back and let them look around and start doing the books. And you know, a delivery boy comes along with food, and why are you still delivering food? Oh, okay, well, that's good. That's good, because we're here. Somebody must have told them to deliver food to us, right? <laughs> Spot on. Um, but unbeknownst to the players, they don't. you, you give them the, the map of the house, it's all good. But the walls, you know, you're kind of looking around the wall, that wall's quite thick there. And there's this child, in inverted commas, of the person that died, still in the house, in these thick walls, spying on the investigators, watching them. And of course, it's not any child. It's, uh, you know, a bit like, you know, Will Whaley, it's kind of um, distorted, kind of corrupted uh, being. And it's a unique mythos entity, really, that I, that I haven't seen before. And the great thing about this this child is, as you as you kind of ramp it up, you can have them meet investigators. You know, they're sat there poring over the books late at night, and there's this thing, you know, watching them. And the monster, if it does kill people, it kind of sucks them in, and they become a part of its um, kind of gestalt consciousness and they'll manifest as faces on its body. So, you know, the, the character goes insane and maybe gets killed by uh, this monster, and then uh, you don't need to tell them that, because then they're, you know, they're, they're walking around, they can see the other player characters, but the other player character's like, oh my God, what the hell is that? Because that, that PC is now just on, on the monster's shoulder looking at the other player characters, and, you know, having some great scenes like that. And, you know, one great side effect of this, uh, one of my players lived about, I don't know, 20 miles away. And uh, he said he was driving back home afterwards at night in the dark on the country roads back to Oxford. He had to pull over at a service station 
get out and check the the trunk of the car to see, you know, just to check there was nobody in there. <laughs> so uh, I kind of took that as a, yeah, that was a good scenario. <laughs> Has uh, anyone come across that one? I, I have the issue and it, it completely escapes my mind. So I didn't recall, so I'll have to it's dig great, it back out. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a nice one to, I like kind of, when I read a scenario, I think, yeah, I can run that one. That's, that's, that's fits me. And I like ones where, you put the situation into the player's hands and you kind of sit back and you let them just get into character and explore the environment and you and you don't have to wait for them to do something. You, the, the antagonist, you've gotten sat there and at the t when the time comes, you can push the antagonist at them. Unless they, you know, if they don't like seek the antagonist out and, and, and do all that stuff, if they're just you know, just uh, doing what players do sometimes and just enjoying, enjoying the, well, hopefully they enjoy the game anyway, but, you know, they're just kind of milling around and doing the mundane things. Then it's got an antagonist that you can push at them uh, and things that you can and push into the game when you feel the time is right. And that kind of makes it easier as a keeper for me to run. Cool. Um, I'm not going to... Uh Big detail about what I'm just going to say. I, I, I picked a couple out, um, which I won't go into any great detail about, just to sort of really mention them to you uh, because we're running out of time and, and I'd like to get some questions in from the audience. But the, the two I kind of picked in my head were Deadlight, which I think most people are, have either got or aware of. And hopefully, if you've not played it, please give it a go. Um, it, uh, written by um, Alan Bly, a good friend of mine who, who, who died this year. And... Um, I think it's a great scenario. I think it was a great scenario then. I think it still, still stands up and um, it works and can be dropped in anytime, anywhere. Um, so I'd recommend that if you haven't tried it, please do. Uh, the other one is an older one uh, written by Marcus Rowland, and um, that's called uh, Bad Moon Rising, um, which is um, it's one of them strange scenarios. It's, it's kind of love-hate scenario for some people. Um, it has a... Um, it's a fairly, you know, fairly standard investigation to begin with. Um, in, it's set in England and uh, you're kind of investigating in the wilds and you kind of discover this kind of secret kind of military training base effectively and um, it's a little contrived and eventually you kind of become part of it or you get into it and you find out what's going on and you basically find yourselves on the moon in the 1920s <laughs> and um, I like the concept that you know you're on the moon in the 1920s I think that's cool you're in this kind of ancient um, is it elder thing? Um, it is yeah. elder elder thing city on the moon, um, who knew? Uh, which is uh, you know excellent. There's, it got it's got shades of um, uh, 2001 space odyssey with monoliths and, and and monoliths and and whatnot. Um, but I think what can be the controversial part, particularly, is the very ending, where um, you kind of get <laughs> you kind of destroy the entire universe. <laughs> and, can be problematic. Um, that's a, uh, that's a campaign ender right there. But, but it's not. But it's not. And that, that's the beauty of it. Because what you actually, you actually <laughs> are encapsulating this kind of like almost like this pocket universe. And around yeah. you, the entire, you see the entirety of, of the cosmos die and re, be reborn. And it actually gives you at the end alternatives to, to how the universe is reborn. It could be just reborn as exactly what it would just been. So just saying, it could be different in so many different ways. So it's like alternate realities are created, wow. and so you can actually almost re-engineer or re-you re, know re, realign your campaign where you want to go from here based on this. You know, is, do do you come? Do you basically put your players back in a situation where actually, yeah, deep ones do rule the planet, or you know, I'm just taking a very mundane, easy one to do. You could just have that where humans are the ones who are hidden and they're the monsters, and I don't know. You know, but you could do all sorts, and there are lots of examples of it, which I think is just fun, and I think, but also it really forces you to think about, well, what do I want to do with that? I could do anything, yeah. and and uh, some really interesting examples. Just real quick, I mean, one thing that just occurred to me is, I mean, because you're able to reset the universe in a way, it could be a way if you were running a standard Call of Cthulhu and you wanted to go for an especially Gonzo pulp campaign after. It's like, oh, this this weird science has been around forever so all of a sudden not only are you going 10 years in the future timeline wise you know to the 30s but it's a completely different 30s than it's what we would 30s, expect yeah, yeah. Does, doesn't uh, the hate come from the fact that 
you, you're kind of a passive observer towards you the are, scenario. Yeah. Where yeah. The, 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 you as the, the characters don't have a lot of agency or that, action that, on the... On that, the this is it. But I think, I, think, I think there's a lot of scenarios written in the 1980s and 1990s that that's a common problem with, where you are an observer rather than interacting with the scenario. And I think any modern run of a scenario, I think it's resplendent on the that, that you basically have to kind of you have to do some tinkering to give some players something to do. So that you're not just reading them text. I think a lot of I don't think this is the only scenario that does it. I think many, nearly the majority of scenarios do that, uh, from my experience. So I don't think I would single it out as being that's its problem. I think they there's a lot have the same problem, but you have to kind of work with it to some degree. Um, when you kind of come back to some of the old scenarios, you know, there's many that have a, a few creaks and uh, need a bit of grease to uh, get them all up for modern play, I think. Okay, um, so there are thoughts, you know, some random thoughts. These were, these were the scenarios that were on our heads when we kind of thought about this panel. We have like many more, uh, I'm sure, and if you asked us two, in two years' time, we'd probably come up with a whole different bunch. Um, but um, we'd be keen to hear what your favourite scenarios are. Uh, we'd also be happy to answer any questions or observations that you guys want to make in the, uh, the last few minutes of, of the panel. So I'll open it out and it, tell us what, you know, what your favourite scenarios are. Uh, one, one of my favourite scenarios was, uh, it's called The Burning Stars from the Terrors and Beyond book. Um, I don't know if anyone's familiar with it. And I don't want to go too deep into it because when you talk about spoilers, that story will be a big spoiler. So if anyone plans to ever play in that game, I don't want to spoil it for you. But um, the gist of it is, I, I was with a good group of people, and I've been playing a couple of intro scenarios to get them, you know, brought into the, the movie called Cthulhu. And then I, I've been seeing the scenario, and I'm like, I thought I'd run this one day. And I finally saw an opportunity. So I, I gave everyone their characters, and, and basically the gist of the scenario is it takes place in Haiti, and it takes place, uh, this industrialist is trying to find his son, and he goes there with his daughter, his bodyguard, and two detectives. But the scenario starts with them having amnesia in a Haitian hospital. And from there, it's them picking up the pieces and finding out what happened the last seven days while they were in Haiti. Sure. And, you know, it's, it's just the way everything ramps up, um, you know, they're finding clues and they're saying, they're like, oh, this is what happened beforehand, this is what happened beforehand. And it's almost Lovecraftian in the sense of all the crazy stuff happened in those seven days, you know? Even though it was fun following the breadcrumbs of what they did, you know, in comparison, the stuff they did before must have been a hell of a lot more crazier. You know, like something you'd expect out of a, a Lovecraftian post report kind of thing. Uh, so, Again, I'm not going to go too far, but one of the highlights I had of that campaign is they go see a voodoo priest, a priestess. And while they're speaking to them, there's a section with the tarot cards. And I actually had a prop of the, uh, you know, I actually had the Necronomicon uh, tarot cards from Donald Tyson, right? Mm -hmm. So I had, I had those, and when I did the whole scene, it was the end of the first game, and I finished it with that tarot card scene, and my players were engrossed. They were lost in it. You know, they're like, oh, it's so awesome. And I'm flipping the cards off and reading them, their, their fortunes that the book describes for them. And like I said, I won't go too spoilerly, but one of the things is a lot of this has to do with one particular character. And the funny thing is, is the guy who picked up that character, because it's all pre-generated, the one who picked up that character was one of the shyest guys in my group, the one who couldn't really get out there. So the final card was this uh, revelation that you would have to do a self-sacrifice at some point. He's just, huh. weird. And as we played in the later part of the game, all the focus went on him, and he just ran with it and finally got out of his shell. Oh, you're really selling me on this. I was going to ask you to repeat the name, but actually I'm recording this, so I don't oh, need okay. to know now. <laughs> <laughs> just, just Stars by David Conyers. The Burning Star. It's in Terrors from Beyond. I, I love, a, I love a, you know, uh, an amnesiac Investigating yourself. Like you can't do it every time. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I've got anyone, anyone else got a story they want to share? Um, I dug up an old one not too long ago. And ran a great old one? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to do that. <laughs> it was uh, Dust to Dust from uh, Dead Reckonings. And it's pretty much Charles Dexter Ward. Mm -hmm. And the investigators are asked to um, 
investigate, uh, look into a body of uh, a relative of someone that had gone missing, and then they start to find out that there's a chain of bodies that have been pulled from cemeteries uh, from different time periods, uh, from different towns all around the region, and they get pointed into a specific location, and then eventually they come across a house where um, a bereaved husband who is also uh, abusive who murdered his wife has been trying to resurrect her. And um, there's some great scenes in there where, uh, depending on what the investigators do, uh, his early experiments are running around the house. There are reanimated cat creatures. That sounds pretty I, I, cool. I had, I had a really cool scene where one of our, my guys was a the character was a boxer, and uh, all he had for a weapon were a pair of brass knuckles, and uh, he nailed the cat left at him, and he, he he nailed it, he critted it, and the cat he just splattered it with his brass knuckles and just went all over the place. It was great, but the, the, the big, the big, you know, you know how the, the scenario's all filled, but at the end, there's this creature in the basement where um, he was also a drunk, so he was in a drunken rage, and he just poured essential salts of all of his experiments down a drain, <laughs> yes. and they all combined, yes. so you've got an arm, leg, multi-mouth, multi-face creature in the basement <laughs> that you need to take people to. I don't know why we... Did ours? These guys are coming up with. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Next time, we'll just listen to you guys. Yeah. Uh, quick question. I, I love running scenarios that put my character in the moral dilemma. I think one of you mentioned that. Yeah. Deadline, I specialize, but I think that one really emphasizes. Do you think of any like that? That's a main focus of the scenarios: putting the players in a moral dilemma. Sure. Sure. Um. Oh. When you ask, yeah, there are loads, aren't there? But yeah, I'm just yeah, it's not, asking. It's, Lonely point, point, point. Yeah, good one. I've seen it quite a few times. Not maybe not quite a moral dilemma, but you know when there's like like uh, like the self sacrifice or they've got to sacrifice a human being, and that's a moral dilemma. But that's maybe a little overused. I've seen that a few times. I've actually, I th looking at the other ones I chose, one of the common threads was that the there is an option to leave the monster to allow <clears throat> to figure out how to live with the mythos, and one of those is um, is Lonely Point Lighthouse. Uh, in which you you go out to a an island to investigate a ghost. You figure out that there's this terrible thing that's been uh, preserved, and, but is has been preserved out of a, a certain. There's a certain love story there. Anyway, it's it is a moral dilemma because you realize this thing has been kind of a victim of a of a situation, um, and also Ghosts of the Florentina, which is one of my favorites that takes place in a theater, an old theater in Kingsport, my favorite um, Lovecraftian setting, um, <clears throat> where you, you're trying to sort of debunk a, a, um, a ghost situation, and you come across things that are living in Kingsport as underground citizens. Um, I guess I won't spoil it, but it's that again. You, there's sort of the option, like, are we going to negotiate with these? Um, so that's another good one. Another one I, I think that's got kind of a moral, moral dilemma that's not uh, too typical, and I can't remember the name of the scenario, but it's the uh, one in uh, Escape from Innsmouth. It's kind of like the introductory scenario where... Um, you have to go into town because the grocery store uh, clerk, Brian Burnham, I think his name is, has been arrested and tossed in jail, and you're supposed to bust him out of jail. And the reason that he's in jail is because he got involved with uh, a, a girl who's a native of Innsmouth who happens to be a Deep One hybrid. Mm -hmm. And she's not really a bad guy. Right. Her family, I think, is kind... I think that's the reason why he got tossed in jail, because his, her family you know, is, is fully in, in invested in the esoteric order of Dagon, but she really isn't. So you're, you're left with a bit of a moral quandary. you got to get him, get this kid out of jail and rescue him, because he really hasn't done anything wrong. Um, but what do you do with the girlfriend? Because he's very much in love with her, and she's in love with him although she's beginning her transformation. So it's like, how do you resolve this? This is really kind of a sticky situation. You don't want to just kill her. <coughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah. Um, I'd just throw in Mr. Corbett because it's one of my favorites as well. Um, not that it's a massive moral quandary, but it does present a societal kind of quandary because you, you're watching your neighbor across the road doing weird stuff. And if you 
play, you know, you play to the point where how far can your, you know, do they, do they wait until they do something? And when they do something, what do they do? Because even if they call the police, police just turn up and, oh, he seems a nice guy, and they leave. And then you see him doing something else, and like, well, at what point do you take action? And I kind of like that kind of, you know, moral choice to kind of, you know, how far can you push things till they actually do something about it, you know? I, I think I should mention that I am pretty sure that Fear Sharp Little Needles is predicated oh, full, on the, got full of them. Yes. Oh, yeah. uh, predicated on the idea of having a moral quandary at the end, a, a difficult choice, um, personally. So check that out. Brian. I was just hoping to jump in. Like, uh, in addition to moral quandary, where there's a question of do we act, do we not act, sort of related to that, I think of those scenarios or those situations where it's not a question of the players, do we act or do we not act, but just the fact that they're presented with a certain awareness and how do they live with themselves? How do, if the characters, I love those scenarios where maybe the characters survive. It's not a question of do we act and risk our lives or risk destruction or play safe and go away. I mean, that can be delicious in and of itself. But also those scenarios or those situations where they really, they do get to go on as, as, as living persons, but there's that sort of how do we, they've now been presented with a certain uh, picture of something going on, and how do the players, uh, if they're going on to further adventures or further episodes in the campaign, I love it when players kind of take on that, how does this, how does what I've been presented with change my character? So it's not even necessarily a question of moral quandary, although those are great, it's, it's almost a question of how do I play my character that now has this new awesome or terrible or wondrous awareness of a fundamentally different reality. So, And if I start telling people about that, are they just going to look at me like I need to be tossed into an insane asylum? Yeah. Which they may very well do. <clears throat> so, um, hopefully that's been of some value. And uh, please check out if you're not heard, if you're not played or seen already any of the stories that the uh, the guys have mentioned. Please, you know, please go and have a look at them. And uh, uh, thank you for coming along. Uh, thank you, uh, my panelists. If you join me in thanking uh, Chris and uh, Chad and Badger and Paul, and uh, see you again in two years. Thank you. Tomes.com mm -hmm.